Let's pray. Lord God, when your son speaks, we are called to listen very carefully. When he gives us a command, it is our duty to discern its meaning and to obey it. And when he takes the clear command of the law and then relates it to us, Lord, in its fullest expression, commanding us to keep it in him through his gospel accomplishment, through the strength and provision of his spirit, Lord. Lord, we must obey it and we ask that you would help us to do so. Lord, we are an angry people. We battle it every day. The little things that annoy us, the big things that break our relationships, the outbursts, the sullen sorrow, the retreat into ourselves when we don't get our own way, the bitterness, the cantankerous spirit that develops over decades. Lord, all of us are angry people with a problem. Oh, we pray, Lord, you'd help us to see your Son, not only in his command, but also in his provision today. And I pray this in his name. Amen. I have a confession to make as I begin today. This week, I dropped my iPhone not very hard, but evidently enough that on my screen, the cellular signal meter was replaced with the words, no SIM card. When you drop your phone and the thing that normally tells you how good of a signal you have, all of a sudden says something different that's usually not very good. Well, I thought, well, great. Did I just break my phone? And what, of course, is this going to cost me? So I took my iPhone to my cell phone provider store, and though they feared and tried to alarm me <laughs> that my phone was probably broken and would need to be replaced, the phone actually went back to perfect working order after they simply changed out its SIM card. Evidently, the card itself was bad and got jostled and just needed to be replaced. And I thought... Woo! God really is good. I really dodged a bullet here. Didn't want to have to pay for a replacement. And with that good news, the gal at the store also informed me that we could now have unlimited data for the same price that we had been paying for our previous limited amount. And now I thought, Wow, God, you've turned what seemed like a really bad thing into a really good thing. And I was, I was happy. After all, who wouldn't want unlimited data on their phone? So I had her change our account to the unlimited plan. However, later on, after I got home, Amy and I learned that what they mean by unlimited data at the same price is that we get really low priority data that puts us at the back of the data line behind everyone else who has the more expensive, high-priority data plans who live in our vicinity. 
So everyone else who pays more, they're at the front of the line and we're at the back of the line. So though our new plan is unlimited, it is extremely slow here in downtown Newport Ritchie, at times so slow that you can't even use it for simple things. The gal at the store failed to tell me this. So here's my confession. My initial reaction to those folks who provide really slow but unlimited data at a really high price was, what a bunch of jerks. <laughs> and as I considered this, I, I looked back down at my Bible, because when Amy came in and told me about this, I was studying through this very text at the time, and I suddenly knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. Because my words of anger were a reflection of the heart problem that Jesus addresses right here in the Sermon on the Mount. I do believe that was sin of me. It may seem small or even minuscule in our day, but my heart was sinful, and I confessed it to God. Before I go any further, let me state that there is a place for righteous anger. I do believe that. Jesus himself, I think, displayed righteous anger. He did this when the right and proper worship of God was being defamed. In Matthew chapter 21, he entered the temple and he drove out the money changers, even overturning their tables, uttering to them, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. I think he was rightly angry then. His zeal for the glory of God compelled him to act with a righteous indignation in the best sense of that expression. He did not lose his cool. He did not blow his stack. He never expressed his anger in an uncontrolled or God-dishonoring way. He simply acted with a right measure of indignation as God himself towards those who were defaming God's place. Furthermore, I think that followers of Jesus are also to display a righteous anger, though only at right times and in certain ways. And it's because of passages like Psalm 139, where the psalmist says this, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. And then he says this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is a man who thinks and feels this way about God's enemies, and in this prayer where he expresses that anger, he asks God to search his heart. An example of a time, I think, when Christians should experience a righteous anger towards those men of blood who maliciously hate God and rise up against him is when the abortion industrial complex rears its ugly head. 
uttering lies to the women of our land in order to end the lives of unborn babies and use their torn bodies for laboratory experiments and pharmaceutical manufacturing. This is indeed a time for righteous indignation because God hates what they're doing. But we must be so very measured in our anger. We must ask God to search our hearts. We must match this also with a sense of humble grace that also prays, O Lord, save these enemies for your great name. Oh, would every abortionist across this land come to know Jesus Christ and stop taking lives? Oh, if that were to happen. But we are not God, and our sense of justice must flow from the justice that He clearly relates to us, primarily in the New Testament through the Word of Christ. So I do believe there is a place for that. But this righteous anger is not ultimately what we're talking about here today. Today we're going to consider the unrighteous, self-serving, pride-inflamed anger that stems from human hearts that are in desperate need of God's intervention. We're going to consider the angry bitterness of heart that leads us to say rotten things about other people, that ruins our relationships with other people, and that leaves us in danger of God. And then we're going to flee to this same God for help because he's the only place we can go. And if you recall, the righteousness of Christ's disciples must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees or they will never even enter the kingdom of heaven. We saw this last week in verse 20, didn't we? Unless our inner life of righteousness A righteousness from a God-changed heart exceeds that of the externally focused Pharisees with their false and hypocritical self-righteousness, then we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That is a very important verse, verse 20. Don't overlook it. Your heart must be changed by Christ and therefore your life must be changed by Christ or you will never enter the kingdom of Christ. Now I want to restate something from last week. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and our Bibles. We talked about this last week. All of those Old Testament scriptures, those 39 books, they pointed to him in some way or another And he fulfills them all through his coming to earth, through his death and resurrection, through his ascension into glory, through his sending of his spirit, and through his second coming to establish his perfect kingdom over his creation. He does it. And if you remember, I asked last week, in what way does Jesus then fulfill all of those moral instructions? Namely, the Old Testament laws that were provided in the first books of the Bible. If he fulfills it all, how does he fulfill those moral instructions? Instructions like that in our text, where it says, you shall not murder. I answered that Jesus fulfills them in the sense that he is the person and the authority through whom all of those moral instructions must be rightly understood. Because he accomplishes them in his full obedience and he relates the fullness of them in his perfect instruction 
just as he is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount. Now notice how Jesus does this here in our text. Notice how he fulfills the moral law of God by contrasting the people's misunderstanding of the law with the true and ultimate direction in which the law points. Jesus provides a new teaching here in Matthew which reveals what the law really pointed to all along. That it was never meant to be a mere code for external conduct but an expression of an internal life that has been transformed for the glory of God. It was meant to be expressed first at the level of the human heart. We delight in the law of God, and it shows in various ways, particularly through the obedience of those ten laws and others. And notice how Jesus reveals this with the full authority of one who fulfills the law. He uses, throughout chapter 5, a similar refrain again and again throughout the rest of the the chapter. He says, you have heard, but I say. You have heard, but I say. And every time he uses that expression, but I say, it's emphatic. The I is emphatic in in the Greek. It has the word ego, I, and then it has the verb, which has the word I encapsulated in the verb. So it's like saying the word I twice. It's like saying, you have heard, but I, I say, or I myself say. And it's emphatic, it adds emphasis, it adds importance to what he is saying here. In verse 21, he says, you have heard, you shall not murder. Verse 22, he says, but I say. Verse 27, you have heard, do not commit adultery. Verse 28, but I say. Verse 31, it was said, give a certificate of divorce. But I say, verse 33, you have heard, do not swear falsely. Verse 34, but I say, and two more times, verse 38, you have heard, an eye for an eye. Verse 39, but I say. Verse 43, you have heard, hate your enemy. Verse 44, but I say. Do you see what he is doing here? He is taking all of their misunderstanding of God's law that they've heard from various teachers and he is now giving the full, complete, fulfilled explanation of how godly obedience is truly to be lived out by God's people. You have heard that this is what God requires? Well, I say that God requires something much deeper deeper than you've ever been experiencing or considering And by the way, I'm God, Jesus says. I fulfilled it, he says. And as we begin to consider this fulfilled, perfect expression of what a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees looks like, we're going to begin by considering the gravity of unrighteous anger in verses 21 through 26. Today, Jesus wants us to see the angry relationships in our lives as God sees them in our lives. He wants us to not see them any longer as our culture says we should see them. He wants them to see the angry relationships in our lives as God sees them in our lives. And there's two points I want to draw out of this text. Number one, we must grasp the severity of unrighteous anger. We must grasp the severity of of unrighteous anger. Look at verse 21. 
You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now the law of God was stated unequivocally to those of old. In the law of Moses, Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, it says, you shall not murder. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5, verse 17, that same law is expressed again, and it says, you shall not murder. To murder was to unlawfully take someone's life. And this evil was generally done, and is generally done today, by individuals in fits of rage against other people whom they perceive have either wronged them or have not met some desire that they believe they are owed. You've either done something bad to me or you've not given me something that I want, therefore, I'm taking your life. That's generally how it happens. And this terribly grievous act was worthy of judgment by the people of Israel and by God himself. As verse 21 says, murderers will be liable to the judgment. Now, this is a broad usage of that word judgment. It means the judgment of both the Jewish council, who would perform capital punishment upon the murderer, and it meant the judgment of God, who would render eternally what that rebel to his will deserved. And those disciples who sat this day at Jesus' feet had heard of this teaching from God's law. They had heard it many times. They knew that this physical act of murder was evil, and they knew that it deserved death. And they were right. It was, and it is evil. Though they did not understand how deep this evil really was. And how it penetrated even into their own hearts. But Jesus declared the ultimate direction to which the law against murder pointed. It wasn't just the physical act. Jesus revealed that this is ultimately a matter of the human heart. Notice where he places the real problem here. He says, everyone who is angry with his brother. Anger is, not something that it, or anger is something that is impossible to codify in law. You can't really pass laws against anger itself because how could you ever really evaluate the true expression of a human heart? How can you evaluate someone's emotion? And even if you could do that, how could you possibly regulate anger in the human heart when virtually everyone expresses anger? There are not enough pieces of paper in this world to write up all of those citations, nor are there enough policemen and women. So Jesus is taking us deeper to a place that only God himself fully understands. He's taking us to the human heart where our true problem resides. Now listen to what Jesus will say even more explicitly later on in this gospel. In Matthew chapter 15, verses 18 and 19, Jesus says this, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Jesus is saying that our true and ultimate problem is the corrupt desires 
that are inside of us at the heart level. That we want to please ourselves in certain God-neglecting or God-rejecting ways, and through these desires for pleasure, we begin to commit all manner of defilements. The human heart is a bitter fountain filled with corrupt desires, and those desires inevitably burst forth in a shower of evil deeds. The Apostle James wrote in James chapter 4, verse 2, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. We respond because of what our heart wants. And what our heart wants to get, it seeks to go get. And when our heart is corrupt, wanting bad things or good things, but in a bad way, it results in evil things, actions, and words. And notice how the Lord says this sin of heart is expressed in verse 22 with regard to anger. He connects the anger of our hearts towards others, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, with insults directed towards that brother and statements of, you fool, directed toward that sister. The word insults is a translation of the Greek word raka. If you have the old King James Version, perhaps even the new King James Version, you'll realize that it's actually stated there. I think it's still stated there. Raka. And it essentially means to call someone a senseless, empty-headed person. That's what it means. It was a common term of reproach, used by the Jews frequently in the day of Jesus Christ. When a person became angry at another person, they would commonly say, you raka. Or as we might say, you idiot. Or even worse. The word fool here is likely the declaring of a moral judgment upon another person, equivalent to calling someone godless because it is used so prevalently in the Old Testament for describing the godless. But here, it is uttered from a heart of bitterness and anger, out of a heart of desires that aren't getting met. It wants things, and it's not getting things, so it's saying things. And this is to look at another person who has offended in some way, and in utter self-righteousness declare about that person, you're a foolish bad person. This is to hate what someone else has said or done and believing yourself to be perfectly in the right, you utter, that guy's a jerk. Or worse. You pronounce a moral judgment upon that person that demeans that person. These are but common expressions of human hearts that are filled with anger when they don't get their way. Jesus is saying that the issue that you and I have with God is not merely the physical act of murder, my friends. Perhaps no one in this room has committed that ghastly sin. No, the issue is the internal act of resentment and anger and bitterness and rage that stem from a heart that wants its own way and rejects the way of God by disbelieving that his way is good. 
It's seeing the circumstances of your life, seeing how they don't match up to what your heart wants, and expressing yourself in evil ways as a result, rather than seeing the circumstances of your life as things that God has brought into your life to challenge you and equip you and cause you to grow so that you might respond in faith and glorify Him. It is to take those things and say, you fool, you idiot, you jerk, or a whole lot worse things. And this is a severe problem. It is a severe problem. The next time, my friends, that you experience such anger, I want you to ask this question. You, you, got, you feel the anger. You feel the burn. You know what I'm talking about. You feel it. It's beginning to well up. Ask yourself this question. What is my heart wanting right now? And if you explore that a little bit, you're going to figure out that it means... I want her to start giving me the things that I want. Why doesn't my wife do this for me? The other wife, that gal does. Why isn't my husband doing these things? Why isn't he helping me in these ways? I'm not getting what I deserve, and I'm going to lash out. My child is not giving me the behavior that I deserve as the mom or the dad that God has put over them, and I'm going to respond with rage. What is the heart trying to tell us? It's telling us, it should be telling us, that we are discontent with what God is doing and with what God has given. And in a sense, and instead, we have decided to allow our own sinful desires to rule us instead of allowing God to rule us. It is to make our sinful desires master rather than Jesus Christ, the fulfiller of the law and the one who meets our desires in himself, the commands that he gives. So this is a severe problem. And Jesus tells us how severe unrighteous anger is a murderous sin that is worthy of hell. Now, I don't say that lightly, and I would never say that if Jesus didn't say that, but I want to match up what I just said with what he just said. I just said unrighteous anger is a murderous sin that is worthy of hell. And Jesus' words are, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, you idiot, you jerk, will be liable to the hell of fire. So I think I'm right in saying unrighteous anger is a murderous sin that is worthy of hell. But you be the judge. Let me paraphrase Jesus here. You've heard from your teachers that whoever murders another person is deserving of both earthly and eternal judgment. Well, well, hear this from me, the fulfiller of the law. If you have angry, resentful, bitter spirits towards others that inevitably result in the utterance of rotten words that injure others, then you are also deserving of such judgment. Notice verse 22 liable to the judgment, liable to the council, liable to the hell of fire. That word hell is such an awful word. It's, like, it's a word that you don't even like to utter. It's an awful word, yet it's an important word. It is a translation of the word Gehenna. Gehenna is the name of a valley the Valley of Hinnom, on the south and east side of Jerusalem, 
which was so called because of the cries of the little children who were thrown there into the fire. In the days prior to King Josiah, the people of Israel did a most ghastly thing. In the worship of the false god, the idol that they had adopted, Molech, they sacrificed their own children to Molech by tossing them into the fires that they had burning in that valley to the south and to the east of Jerusalem. King Josiah had those practices abolished in 2 Kings 23 and defiled the valley of Hinoam by making it a fiery dumping ground, so to speak, for garbage and even for the corpses of criminals. Gehenna, by the time of the first century in Jesus' day, was a place of continual burning as it was always being filled with more and more refuse and it eventually came to be associated symbolically by the people of the first century as the judgment place of God. They thought of Gehenna, they thought that that seems like God's judgment. And Jesus incorporates that. That just as the bodies of dead criminals were placed in the fire of this wicked forsaken place, so those under God's judgment would face his wrath in the place he has prepared. What will this place look like? Well, it remains somewhat of a mystery, honestly. But it certainly is a place of, of conscious torment that is deprived of any of the goodness of God. It is a place too terrible, I think, even for perfect expression. And we're going to hear more about it in this book as we go forward and talk more about it. But it certainly is the sad part of the story. So Jesus is saying that the angry human heart, that bitter fountain filled with corrupt desires that burst forth in showers of evil words and deeds, is deserving of God's judgment in God's place of judgment. Please note the severity of this. My friends, grasp, grasp the severity of your unrighteous anger. If your heart remains unchanged by God, if you remain in your unbelieving condition, and if you have bitter anger in your heart as a result, you will stand before God one day as having broken his command in the law, you shall not murder. And you will be guilty because all along it has been an issue of the heart. And you will be liable to the hell of fire and my friends, when you consider that, understand that the severity of our unrighteous anger necessitated the severity of the cross. When you consider how God judges your heart and the severity of his right justice down upon it, then recognize the necessity of the severity of the cross of the Son who would say these words and within a couple of years would go and shed his blood, suffocating and bleeding to death on a cross to pay for all of those people who are murderers in heart. Understand the severity that he had to, he had to bear the punishment. He had to take the pain. He had to take your blame upon himself. He had to take the wrath of God upon himself and experience separation from all of the goodness of the Father for you and for me. He had to endure that if it was ever to be said of me and of you that we are righteous when as we look at that verse we say I am not righteous. I deserve the hell of fire according to Jesus. And we do. We do deserve it. But praise God that the severity of our sin has been outmatched and outclassed 
by the severity of Christ's work on the cross. Secondly, we must deal promptly with endangered relationships. We must deal promptly with endangered relationships. In verses 23 to 26, Jesus connects his teaching to the Christian life through two striking illustrations. He begins with the word so in verse 23, which connects what he's about to say with the words of verses 21 and 22. And he now begins to relate how Christians with changed hearts are to respond to his shocking teaching about anger. And he is seeking to make a very important point to his disciples. Take anger in your relationships seriously by addressing it quickly. I think that's what he wants to get across in these two illustrations. Take anger in your relationships seriously by addressing it quickly. And once again, he does this through two vivid displays. First of all, he speaks of the offended brother. Look at verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Now this word brother is likely a direct reference to other followers of Christ, other disciples, those who would be called Christians, first in a derogatory way, then in a happily adopted way, Christians, brothers, sisters in Christ. Jesus is very concerned in this gospel, as we're going to see, with how Christians relate to each other. We're going to see this a lot in this book. But certainly, this also applies in a blanket way to all human beings that we encounter in our lives. Jesus clearly does not mean seek reconciliation with other Christians, but don't worry about it with everybody else. He's not saying that. He is simply emphasizing the relationships of Christians here as a matter of highest importance. Because remember, we are to be lights to this world. And if we can't get along, how are we ever to be lights? As Paul says in Galatians 6 verse 10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We have a responsibility to act rightly towards all people, but even more so to those we call brother and sister. Now, in the first century, the Jews, they would take their offerings to God in the temple in Jerusalem, and they would present them at the altar in the temple. This was the first century old covenant way that was about to pass of worshiping God. They did what Jews had been commanded to do since the giving of the law of Moses. They presented sacrificial offerings to God in the holy place of God. This was worship. But Jesus tells his disciples to do something radical here. He tells them that even if they are about to offer their gift before the altar, and they remember that their brother has something against them, they are to leave their gift there and make a beeline for their brother. Now imagine it. Imagine it. You're, you're standing in line. You're waiting your turn. Your gift is chewing some grass that you've brought along in order to keep it happy before it gets presented. And you remember, Samuel was upset with me. 
And I was pretty rotten in the way I spoke to him. Oh, I said some terrible things to him. Well, Jesus says that the gift is to be left and a straight line is to be made towards Samuel in order to right the wrong. Jesus says, go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Do you see what Jesus values more highly than external acts of worship, my friends? He values a heart that quickly, eagerly, and humbly seeks to make amends when someone has been wronged. My brothers and sisters in Christ, do you know what Jesus demands first before your money and your time and your energies or your hands raised high and your voices lifted up in this place? He demands that you be right with each person sitting next to you in this place. Consider, my friends, your spirit, your spirit from your heart towards your brothers and your sisters at Riverside. Do you need to repent? Do you need to confess this to God asking for His help? And do you need to push through all of the awkwardness and swallow up all of that pride and go and say to your brother or sister, Oh, my friend, I was wrong. Would you please forgive me? Oh, the power of a church that is filled with sinners who have become saints, but who are willing when they sin to go to each other and say, oh, my friend, I was wrong. Would you please forgive me? Would you help me to not be this way to you anymore? Oh, a church filled like that is a radiant light. It is a salty presence in a world that knows nothing like that. The second illustration that Jesus gives is of the injured accuser. Verse 25, he says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now this example appears to be a little more generalized. This is two individuals walking to court because there is evidently some financial issue between them. One individual is accusing the other individual of owing some money, it seems. Probably Jesus is still referring to brothers or Christians here because nothing seems to tell us otherwise, at least as I can tell. But again, this would also affect all of our relationships. And Jesus' instruction in verse 25 is to come to terms quickly with your accuser. His emphasis is the same as before. Be fast, eager, deeply desirous, to make things right with the one who is accusing you. Evidently, the accuser is the injured party here. He is owed some money, and the other fella, for whatever reason, isn't paying. Well, the other fella is to take the words of Christ so seriously as he's just presented them that he seeks to quickly make things right. He is to value obedience to the words of Jesus and have a proper fear of God in his heart far more than the money that he does not want to surrender. Because after all, the money will burn. But he wants to stand before God. He wants to live the righteous life that God has already accomplished in his heart and wants to see lived out in his life. 
And if he doesn't treat his brother with a tender spirit from a changed heart, there will be consequences, Jesus says. And that day, if you had debt and you didn't pay it, you could be confined. This man would be handed over to the judge, who would hand him over to the guard, who would put him in prison. And he would not get out until he paid every cent. And this seems to be Jesus' way of saying that we must demonstrate a heart of reconciliation with our brothers and sisters in Christ and to all of our fellow man, or we should have no reason to expect the avoidance of God's judgment. We must demonstrate a heart of reconciliation with our brothers and sisters in Christ, or we should have no reason to expect the avoidance of God's judgment. Remember verse 20. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, my friends, one who has been forgiven much becomes a forgiver. And one who has had his or her debts canceled out by God will commit to dealing rightly with all debts with his fellow man. These are the proper responses of a heart that has been changed by the gospel. They do not save us. They are the result of having been saved and changed and transformed. Please don't get the cart before the horse. Trying to avoid insults and saying things like, you fool, is not the way to get to the kingdom. The way to get to the kingdom is through Christ alone. And when you have Christ alone, you want to have a heart that isn't controlled by your angry thirsts, but instead finds its contentment in him alone, which will result in desires that want to make amends and find restitution and enjoy reconciliation with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus is telling us to take anger in our relationships seriously by addressing it quickly. So once again, you must deal promptly with the endangered relationships in your life. Who do you need to talk to? We're about to take the Lord's table and consider the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And we've preached on it here of the importance of participating in this table in a worthy way, meaning you have your relationships with your other bros and your sisters in Christ right, and not in an unworthy way where you're treating them like they're dogs in some way, yet you come and still pretend like this table unifies us. Who do you need to talk to? What changes do you need to make? What help do you need to elicit? The way to become more humble, the way to become more quick to forgive, the way to have a tongue more carefully guarded, the way to become more devoted to reconciliation, and the way to have a heart that is tender like Jesus is to immerse yourself in the person and the character and the accomplishment of Jesus. It is to live a life of dependent exertion, striving hard to know Christ and to see Christ and to reconsider Christ and remember Christ and to look to Christ, to read of Christ and to pray it back to Christ and to strip away things in this world so that we might enjoy Christ and to share Christ and to serve others because of Christ and to come together and worship Jesus Christ. These are the ways that God has given us by looking to His Son in dependent exertion 
that we might grow in our walks with our God. So, my friends, see the angry relationships in your life as God sees them in your life. Our world says something altogether different. I can talk with a little league baseball mom or dad for about five minutes And within those five minutes, a bitterness has been expressed towards someone, usually as a part of the baseball league itself. A coach, a parent, an umpire. Oh, there's one umpire that gets horrid things said about him. It does not take very long before I see a bitter, angry spirit. And you know, all too often that's the case when I have conversations with Christians. And you know what? All too often it has been the case when people have had conversations with me. Oh, we must see the angry relationships in our lives as God sees them in our lives. And our final application today is found at the table. I ask our men to come, and I want to say a word of prayer while they prepare it. Oh, Lord God, these are weighty things. Your son tells us that righteousness and and right living and honoring you comes from the heart. It isn't a list. It's a changed heart. And Lord, none of us can do that. We need you to do that. And yet, Lord, we see in your word that a new heart is promised when we believe in your son, Jesus. So, Lord, I pray that you would have every person here to have, first of all, a mind and a heart of faith in Christ. And then, Lord, a heart stemming from that that yearns to honor you in relationships with others. I pray this in Jesus' name.